Well, last week we heard from Genesis 2 that when Adam awoke from his sleep, he discovered the full richness of his life with God. You see, up until that point, Adam enjoyed his life with God in many other ways. Adam's work was meaningful and satisfying. He cultivated crops in the garden. His work mirrored God's work in creation. And just like God names the creation, Adam named the creatures, all the creatures, and so he joins God in ordering the world. So we can conclude that Adam had the best of all vocations. But not only that, God also gave Adam great freedom. He was free to eat from any tree. But here's the important thing. He couldn't do anything he wanted. There were prohibitions. You see, for us as creatures, true freedom is always practiced within limits. Adam could not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because that would be foolish. Rather, he was to live according to God's commands. That was true wisdom. So Adam ate of every tree, but not from the forbidden fruit, because that would lead to death. But there was one more way that Adam would image God that we see in chapter 2. See, God in his nature is a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an unbreakable triunity of persons. And when God created Eve and joined man and woman together in marriage, humanity for the first time experienced a community of persons. Think about this. All our cherished relationships in our life stem from the fruit of a union between a man and a woman. Our families, our friendships, our communities, even our church family stem from the fruit of marriage between a man and a woman, which is the foundation of all our other relationships. So the way God's design works out in life is this. Many are called to marriage and ordinarily have children. Still others are called to singleness at different points in their lives or for a lifetime. But no one, absolutely no one, is called to be lonely. Because not only has God given us our family of origin or the family of, crea of our creation when we marry, but through the gospel, we have the family of the church. We are created for relationships and for community. That is God's wonderful design. So when Adam opened his eyes, this was the world he woke up to. He and Eve lived in perfect harmony with one another and with God and with creation. The world was as it should be. But that is not the world we woke up to, is it? Marriage does not resemble this original unity any longer, whether it's because of conflicts in our own marriages, separation, divorce, domestic violence, or the choice to forego marriage altogether, or the redefining of marriage, whether it's same-sex marriage or open marriages for heterosexual couples, in all these ways and more, the original unity of marriage is threatened. 
And if that foundational community was corrupted by sin at the beginning, it is no surprise, it is no surprise that all other communities that would stem from marriage are under the siege of sin as well. Whether it's on a macro scale with nation and people groups at war with each other, or smaller scale conflicts in our families, workplaces, or church communities. Wherever two or three are gathered, sin crouches at the door to damage God's design for human community. And the same is true for our human calling as well. Adam put his hands to work and it brought him joy. Work for Adam was always fruitful and never futile. Some of you haven't had that assurance about work for years, or maybe you've never had that experience of work. And that's because we do not put our hands to work or eat our bread or put our head down in the world of Genesis 2. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. It's because we don't live in a Genesis 2 world anymore. We live in the world of Genesis 3. Sort of. And I say sort of because the world where this, this story of the fall is recorded is not like our world. The story was first written for, for a people who lived in the ancient Near East and while the people, images, and poetry used in the story would have struck a chord with its original hearers, in our day, this story is often alluded to with mockery or in lighthearted ways. So maybe we don't need to take it all that seriously anymore. There's a talking snake, naked people eating fruit that they aren't supposed to eat, an angel with a sword standing outside the garden, so how are we to understand this story today? First, I want to say Scripture wants us to see ourselves in Adam and Eve in, in a few ways. First of all, that Adam and Eve are real people. You see, the whole book of Genesis, after Genesis 1, is structured around genealogies. So later on, we're going to see Noah's genealogy, and then further on in Genesis, we're going to get Isaac's genealogy, and Jacob, and others. But the first of the genealogies is found in chapter 5-1 where we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. But not just in Genesis. Jesus understood them to be historical figures as well. In Matthew 19, Jesus provides some teaching on marriage and he goes back to the first marriage in the garden to correct the misunderstandings of marriage in his day. Adam and Eve's existence is not just important to understand Jesus' teaching on marriage. According to Luke and Paul in the New Testament, we really can't even understand who Jesus is or what he has done apart from Adam and Eve. In Luke's gospel, Jesus' genealogy goes all the way back to Seth, the son of Adam. Luke wants us to see that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all of Adam's race, the whole of humanity. 
And in Paul's letters to the Romans and in 1 Corinthians, Jesus' obedience, his death, and his resurrection is understood as the overturning of our sinful nature and disobedience that started in Adam. In Jesus, the second Adam, we have been given a new nature. And through the obedience of Jesus Christ, we have a glorious victory over sin and death that started in Adam. Scripture also wants us to see that our lives are patterned after Adam and Eve in the way they behave in chapter 3. We see ourselves in this story so readily, don't we? And how easy it is to give into temptation, to mistrust God, to experience the demanding burden of work that affects our families. We have struggles in our relationships and marriages, the pains of parenthood, dealing with death, and how often we fail to return back to God's promises in the midst of our troubles. We see ourselves a lot in Adam and Eve, don't we? So while the way the story of Genesis 3 is told in Scripture seems foreign to us, The pattern of living portrayed and the havoc of sin is all too familiar to us and to our world. So let's now look at this passage together. Notice where the trouble starts in verses 1 through 7. It starts with deception. Now, I don't know about you, but my dislike for snakes is quite strong. Truthfully, I've never gotten so close to, this, to a snake to see whether or not one could talk because as soon as you say there's a snake, I'm halfway down the road. So what makes this serpent so tempting for Adam and Eve? Why do they listen in the first place? Well, snakes in the ancient world symbolized fertility and healing. Uh, On Pharaoh's crowns in ancient Egypt, it was not uncommon to have a gold cobra in an attacked uh, position prominently displayed. Snakes were powerful in their strike and wise in their movements. So given the significance of snakes in the ancient world, we can understand the lure of them. It's no wonder that Satan would disguise his attack through a creature who would promise great things. But you know, we too get lured by appearances and false promises on a daily basis. We are regularly deceived by advertisements for products and experiences that make promises that they are just not able to keep. The shows that we watch on streaming explicitly or implicitly show that life without God is harmless. In fact, it's actually better Because traditional Christian views of life, they're just so restricting. There is a good life for you beyond God, just waiting for you. If only you were brave enough to step out on your own to discover your true self. That's the deceptive message that is being reinforced in the things in the media that's around us. Notice that the deception begins with God's word and wisdom being questioned. Look at what the serpent says in verse 2 there. 
did God actually say to you, and he's talking to Adam and Eve, that's important, both of them are there, did God actually say to you, Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In that simple question, that one simple question, is so much deceit. In chapter 2, God is referred to as the Lord God. If you look back up in your Bibles, it's capital L-O-R-D. That is Yahweh, the name God, uh, God's people called God in covenant relationship with Him. But the serpent uses a less personal name for God. He just says God, Elohim, perhaps suggesting to Adam and Eve He's a more distant creator and not a loving heavenly father. Now there's more, that's, that's a more subtle deceit. There's a more overt deceit going on here. Because when you take all the serpent statements and verses from verses 2 to 4, here's the net effect of what we get. He questions God's authority. He changes God's word. And then in verse 4, verse 4, he flat out contradicts God's claim when he says to the couple, if you eat of it, you will not surely die. The serpent wants the couple to believe that he knows more about God than what was revealed in his word. He has inside knowledge of God that they don't have. You see, for the serpent to get his way, all he has to do is undermine God's word. Now keep in mind, Adam is present the whole time with Eve, and he remains silent. And when he does, Eve adds to the confusion with her own omission. Verse 2, she says, God said we may eat of the trees in the garden. Is that what God said? When we look back in chapter 2, verse 16, we see that God said they could eat of every tree except for one. God says every, and Eve omits it. Now, that may not sound like much of anything, but throughout Scripture, the idea of God providing for every and all our needs is critical to our faith. Listen to some of these verses throughout the Bible. Ephesians 1. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. James chapter 1. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. Philippians 4, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1, all of God's promises are yes and amen. Even though God's word prohibits some things, it never ceases to provide God's people everything that they need. And that was true from the very beginning. So Eve subtracts the word every from God's command perhaps undermining God's graciousness. But then she does a little addition as well. She says to the serpent, even if we touch the tree, we shall die. 
God never said that. So when you put all these statements together, the serpent detracts from God's word, the woman distorts it, and the man says nothing in defense of it, and all that is left in the scene is multiplied confusion. In the end, all are deceived because the clear word of God is not front and center. And that lesson is very relevant today because today is Reformation Sunday. Prior to the Protestant Reformation, there was an abundance of speech about God in the church that undermined, misrepresented, or even replaced the Word of God, much like we see in Genesis chapter 3 here. And on Reformation Sunday, we remember how God's promises and commands as revealed in Scripture are the sole fountain from which our knowledge of God springs forth. The truth of God's Word then and now is what keeps us from falling away from the living Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we have Bibles in the pews in the language of the people in this Protestant church and other Protestant churches. That's why the pulpit is front and center in the sanctuary where God's Word is read and preached. The original sin was losing sight of God's Word. And we as a church, time and time again, need to be reminded of its centrality. Listen to what Martin Luther uh, says about this passage. When the gospel is preached in its purity, people have a sure guide for their faith and are able to avoid idolatry. But then Satan makes various efforts to draw people away from the Word or to corrupt it. Satan still incites other sins, of course, but when Satan attacks the Word and the works of God, that is far more serious and more dangerous. Well, just how serious and dangerous does it get? Well, Adam and Eve show us. When they disregard God's commands, thinking they would become wise, they became fools. They were already made in the image and likeness of God, but that was not enough for them. Instead, they had to be God. In a recent memoir, singer, writer, and perhaps most famously known as the ex-wife of former pastor Joshua Harris, Shannon Harris writes this about why she left the faith. She says, we need to restore our connection to our own wisdom, to our own nature, to our own bodies, to our own fulfillment and work and pleasure, and to our own ways of being and doing. Isn't that what got Adam and Eve in trouble in the first place? It is a seductive deception. It promises empowerment, but only results in enslavement to our human desires, to our sins. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, their eyes were opened, but they didn't reach the summit of knowledge of good and evil like they thought. Instead, they fell into the dangerous grip of sin and the devil. 1 John 3, 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the evil one has been sinning from the beginning. Here at the beginning, we see the evil one's deception. Deception. 
and how that plays out. So after the deception, we now discover the danger that Adam and Eve are in. You see, before, they were protected and provided for by God's laws. And now they're outlaws. Notice first that they are no longer at home within their own bodies. They experience shame. They are now alienated from each other as a couple. Their nakedness is something to hide from one another. They're outlaws. So now they must try to cover up, which they do with fig leaves. And that same principle applies to us today. When we do not feel at home in our bodies or in our relationships, we do things to cover up our sense of brokenness in all kinds of ways. Through food, through illicit relationships, through overcoming, overcompensating by achievement, through doing religious things, through changing our biological sex. Our instinct as human beings is to cover up ourselves to deal with our brokenness and nature, sinful nature. But such cover-ups can only get us so far It's only a matter of time until we start running. And that's what Adam and Eve do next. They storm off and try to hide from God in their own home. You know, in the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke 15, when the son realizes he sinned against his father, he has some faith that his father would welcome him back perhaps as a servant, if he just returns home. You see, he at least believed the father would have some compassion for him. But when Adam and Eve fall into sin, they have no such confidence in God's compassion. The fact that they did not die when they ate should have clued them in that God is so gracious to not only provide for everything they need, but He would have graciously welcomed them back. But instead, they run and they hide. In verse 8 and following, we read that in the most pleasant part of the day, the cool of the day, the cool breeze of the late afternoon, God does not allow them to remain in crippling fear. He doesn't let sin and shame dominate their lives. No, instead, He pursues them like a loving Father. And He asks them a series of questions from verses 9 through 11. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You know, when my kids sometimes do something that they're not supposed to, they sometimes hide in fear. And just as worse as the crime commitment is the fact that they feel like they have to run and hide from their father. So God is trying to draw them out, out of the shame, back out into the open. And he gives them the opportunity to confess their sins, how they have followed too much the devices and desires of their own hearts, as the prayer book says. But instead of confession, the two outlaws take up bad counsel and they represent themselves. 
They become defensive in their defense. And finally, Adam speaks up in the story. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. When King David was confronted with adultery in Psalm 51, this is what we said earlier, he said this to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. When the prodigal son returned home, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Adam feels bad about himself, but he doesn't acknowledge the cause of it before God. He doesn't confess. Instead, he engages in another form of cover-up. And just like the physical cover-up, the psychological cover-up is only going to get him so far. He just continues to conceal things. Now, in response to God's third question, Adam commits two sins in a single breath. He blames his wife and God. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. He points his finger, and when he does, he has three pointing back at him that highlights just the grievous nature of his three sins. He should have spoken up when Satan told lies about God's word. He should not have eaten the fruit, and in his shame, he should not have hidden or run away or blamed. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is nowhere to be seen in Adam's heart. Now earlier in the chapter, you'll remember that Adam followed Eve into sin. And now Eve follows Adam into sin because rather than taking responsibility she blames the serpent. It's important to see this, that Adam and Eve are equally guilty before God. But Adam is held responsible because he is the one to whom God gave the command to in the first place, which is, why, which is probably why the New Testament notes Adam's guilt in the sin. Now, as we start to look at these judgments from God, we are going to get a first in the Bible in verses 14 and 19. Because you see, up until this point, what God speaks to His creation and about His creation is nothing but a word of blessing. This judgment is what lets us know why rebellion against God is so dangerous. Ralph Venning in his work called The Sinfulness of Sin, isn't that a great title, The Sinfulness of Sin, says this, as God is holy, all holy, only holy, altogether holy, and always holy, so sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, altogether sinful, and always sinful. As in God, there is no evil, so in sin, there is no good. 
As God is the chiefest of goods, so sin is the chiefest of evils. Have you ever thought, what's so wrong with this particular sin? It isn't that bad. You see, sin, when it is examined against the backdrop of our standard of goodness, it may not look so bad. But sin is that bad because God is that pure, is that holy, and is that good. And if we keep that in mind, we'll get a better understanding of why from verses 14 to 19, God pronounces such a strong word of judgment. But we were also going to see this. We're going to see this for the first time in the Bible. That when God speaks a strong word of judgment, there is always a word of grace behind it. And we get a glimpse of that a little bit because the narrator starts referring back to God as the Lord God. The one who pronounces judgment is the one who keeps his covenant commitment to his people once and always. His judgment wounds, but it always wounds to heal. So now let's look at these judgments in reverse order. The most extended one we find is against Adam, and that makes sense given his responsibility. In verses 17 and 19, we discover that the work that was once fruitful and satisfying will become a burden for humanity. The world will be against humanity. Work will not be easy for men and women. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 describes what work is like for people since the fall. Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. You ever feel that after a work day? Even at nights, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Now, God never designed work to be meaningless or oppressive. The reason that work can be deadening is because of sin's effects. The ground is cursed. Our work is not always what we want it to be on this side of the fall. But despite sin, the reason our jobs can be satisfying is because God has never withdrawn His blessing from creation. Your, may, your work may not be what you want to do, but whatever fruit your work does produce, it is a sign of God's blessing upon it. And not only that, as Christians, whatever work that we do, we are reminded that our labor is never in vain because Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, in addition to difficult work, Adam and all of humanity will be subject to death. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. The wages of sin is death. In God's covenant with Adam and Eve, death was not the plan. Like the serpent's deception, it is an intruder. Death will be no more when Jesus Christ returns. But until then, even death can be made a grace by God. Even death can be made a grace by God. Well, how so? Well, first of all, the fact that people die limits the evil a particular person can do. 
which when you think about the horrific things going on in the world right now, in some ways that is good to know that this person will not live on forever, but they will one day die and meet their maker. But it is also used by God, that is, death is also used by God to free people from suffering and pain. It becomes the passage through which people travel into the presence of God. Psalm 116, 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. People are often afraid to say this, but after the death of a loved one, there is a feeling of relief because the suffering in the body has ended for that person. They are no longer in pain, and if they are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are now in His presence. So in that way, death has been made a grace by God, although it was not part of the original plan. Now as we look at the judgment against the woman, God says, God says first of all, that the whole process of childbearing will be painful. The whole process of childbearing will be painful. You know, when our first was born and people would ask my wife and I about the birthing story, I made the mistake of speaking up first. I like to think that after the first was born, I, I learned something, but I'm not so certain that's the case. You have to ask her. But childbearing will be painful for women. But marriage is also going to be painful as well for humanity. Instead of to love and to cherish, the husband and wife will seek to dominate and will have desires to control each other. You see, the unity that man and woman enjoyed at the beginning, moving forward, is going to be hard fought and always threatened. Marriage is not easy because of the fall. But under the gospel, when a husband and a wife submit their lives together under the lordship of Christ and submit themselves to one another, the husband as the head and the wife as the, as the body, there is a unity between each other that is recovered. Marriage can be redeemed. And if you are struggling in your marriage this morning and you both identify as followers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to tell you there is always hope for redemption under Christ's lordship. Now finally we get to the judgment of the serpent. In verse 14 he says, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. A snake is perched when they are in the attack position. It has the upper hand but no longer. The fact that it will slither close to the dust of the earth where the dead go down to be buried means evil may strike first and hard, but it does not win. In the end, it will be defeated. And amazingly, the defeat of the serpent, the defeat of evil is going to come from the woman that was just deceived because from her offspring will come one who will do war with evil, and ultimately the head of the serpent will be crushed. Galatians 4, 4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent first His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
In 1 John 3, we heard this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We did not wake up in paradise. Our world continues to be under siege by evil, both from without and from within our hearts. But the reason we gather for worship every Sunday is because the punishment for our sins has been taken on by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has become a curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the promise of Genesis 3 has already been fulfilled in Him and will be further fulfilled when He returns. Far as the curse is found, Jesus Christ will bring redemption. And may that be our hope this week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, join me in prayer. Lord God, we are so grateful to you that although our sins deserve judgment and death and separation from you, In your Son, Jesus Christ, you have overcome the works of the devil once and for all. So, Lord Jesus, continue to conquer evil in our hearts and in our world. Help us to practice righteousness that we might demonstrate to the world that in you the the, the fall has been reversed and there will be a triumph of righteousness that will reign one day totally on this new creation. In your name we pray, amen.